I thought I knew who scored the goal and I gave Shabalala the full treatment. But truth be told, there was 10% of me thinking, I hope I've got this right because uh, he didn't have his back <laughs> showing me. I didn't see the number on his shirt. And so one of the greatest feelings of relief I've had ever was when he turned around to do his dance and I saw, I think it was number eight on his shirt. I saw the number eight and realised I'd called the right name. Uh, and so, so anything else I said after that was probably uh, nothing more than letting out of massive relief. Welcome in to episode four of The Heart of the Game. I'm your host, Nate Abaurea. You can find me on Twitter at Nate Abaurea and be sure to follow at World Soccer Talk. Our guest in this edition of the show is one of the most recognizable voices in football. It's Peter Drury, and we shared a great conversation about the craft of broadcasting, Peter's love for the beautiful game, that iconic moment at South Africa 2010, the Greek god in Rome, and so much more. But we started out by discussing something that makes Peter truly unique in today's commentary industry, and I'm not talking about his style. This is important getting a hold of you today in this way because it's the only way that I can get a hold of you. Peter, why do you have no social media to this very day? Nate, it's really interesting that that's the first question you asked me. And it says something about the modern generation, <laughs> maybe that I'm not a part of it. But um, I, I just uh, like to do my work and live my family life. And the, the whole social media phenomenon has grown up, obviously, since I began my broadcasting career. And listen, I totally, I'm not so much of a dinosaur that I don't absolutely accept that it is a part of the scenery now. It, it is what it is. And it would be impossible now for anybody, I think, to establish the sort of career I've been lucky enough to have without being on social media. But in that regard, I've kind of got away with it. And um, from a personal point of view, I'm more than happy to finish my work when the final whistle goes, put my microphone down, leave it, go home to my wife and my uh, grown-up children and um, not feel the need to um, extend my working day by <laughs> dealing with, with all that social media brings. Now, listen, I, I understand that social media is a two-edged sword or a two-sided coin, however you want to put it. You know, it has a lot of advantages, a lot of really good things. And people in our business can glean a lot of encouragement from it, as well as a lot of information. Equally, it can be very critical uh, for those of us who do our jobs very publicly. And um, I, I'm sort of long enough in the tooth now that I know when I've had a good day and I know when I've had a bad day. And all of us who broadcast know that both of those exist. And, and I don't really feel the need for um, other people to be telling me. Um, you know, if my boss tells me, if, if my peers tell me that I've been useless today, I absolutely take that on board. But my skin isn't particularly thick. And, um, you know, I, 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 can, I just don't have the sort of headspace for it. And, and maybe that does make me a dinosaur. I don't know. But I'm very comfortable without it. I, I've been a, a long way um, answering that question, haven't I? I'm sorry, but I hope it 
it gives you some sort of grasp on the way I feel. It absolutely gives me a grasp on how you feel. And bouncing off of that, I actually remember uh, catching a chat uh, that you had with a, a, a fabulous interviewer uh, back back in the UK um, regarding your call of the Roma-Barcelona match. And you referenced uh, your children. I believe it was one of your sons who actually called you in as, as that great call, the Greek god in Rome, started going viral uh, and kind of had to call you in and go, Dad, check this out. You're not going to believe this. Everyone's going off about your call. What was that moment like where you got kind of sucked in uh, to the social media world for a few minutes? Well, I got sucked in, but only, as you say, by proxy, really. Yeah, my son <laughs> rang me and and um, and various people started texting me. I can manage a text. You'll be glad to know. Um, <laughs> but but um, and, and sending me sort of screen grabs and this sort of thing. So I did get to see it. And the next 24 hours were were fairly crazy. But, you know. That was that was a lovely 24 hours because people seem to like it. Um, but oddly enough, and you might think this is odd, it kind of reinforced the way I felt, because although that was lovely and, and the vast majority of it was really complimentary and, and that's great. And we all have an ego and that played to my ego and it was it was lovely. Um, it was all consuming. And uh, I couldn't escape. And actually, I did. Very rarely does this happen around a, a European Champions League game. But I had a spare day in Rome that week and I was going around the Colosseum and on the tourist buses and on the Trevi Fountain and all of these things. And my phone was going the whole time. And I thought, this is why, lovely though this all is, this is why I love the anonymity. I, I don't do the job I do, I promise you. I know it seems contrary and, and almost contradictory, but I don't do this job to be well known to the extent that I am reasonably well known. I don't particularly like it. I don't enjoy um, being um, out there, really. If it, it, it is contradictory, but if I could do it all in private, I would, um, which, of course, I can't. So <laughs> it's, it's um, so that day, that day after the, the Roma Barcelona game, that day was fantastic, but rather than making me think, oh, I must be on social media because that means I'll get all of this fabulous feedback, it actually reinforced my view that I didn't want to be. And if 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 the um, if the outpouring is that great, I'll hear about it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> just a just a wee taste, uh, all all you needed back on that day. Now now that call went viral that call is is such a an iconic moment it's part of that great night that was uh for Roma and that 3-0 win against Barcelona and so many uh of your broadcast calls have have become parts of of the plays themselves of these famous goals a few others uh that we'll reference uh here a little bit more in the show but one thing that I've heard people say about your calls and this is people who are avid broadcasting fans or even fellow broadcasters or folks who are just casual fans they'll hear a call of yours and go my god it's so good it almost sounds scripted it's it sounds scripted and i i look at these people every time and i say i can assure you that it's not these are not scripted whatsoever these are coming from the heart so peter where do these calls come from that are not scripted the ones that come off are just a matter of good fortune and planets aligning i promise you it's it's not a it's not sort of a a preconceived idea or anything like that. Just once in a while, you get a big moment and happen to find the right words for it, and that's lovely. 
And, and all, all I would say to the people who wonder whether they are scripted is this. If you take as the example that goal in Rome, which was scored by a Greek centre-half, OK, he was a very improbable scorer of a very improbable goal in a scenario that just wasn't going to happen. And so to presuppose or to suppose that I sat the night before that game writing a script for that goal <laughs> is fanciful. You know, that was a hundred thousand to one. And by the way, of all the outfield players for Roma that night, he was probably the least likely scorer. So it does presuppose that I'd written a line for the other 17, you know, <laughs> and, and honestly, there aren't enough days in the week for that. Um, and so all of these things, there's a real danger. Honestly, there is a real danger, I would say, and, and co other commentators would back this up in, in trying to preconceive or, or prescript a goal because or any sort of moment, because the truth of the matter is that when it happens, it's not exactly as you would have pre-imagined it. And so any attempt to write it will fall short. And, and if I may, if I'm not rattling on too much, I, I'll give another very good example for that. The day um, Manchester City famously won the league and Aguero scored the goal, you know, um, in 2012 to win the Premier League with almost the last kick of the season. Now, any of us who worked on that game would have been unprofessional if we hadn't arrived at that ground thinking about what we were going to say when the final whistle went that day and Manchester City won the title. Because strip away the drama, all Manchester City had to do that day was beat Queen's Park Rangers, one of the smallest, weakest teams in the league, and they were the champions. So we assumed, we all assumed that was going to happen. So there wouldn't have been a commentator there that day who hadn't thought about what he was going to say for the trophy lift or for the blowing of the final whistle when City were champions. But anything you might have prepared in advance for that game if you had used it in the moment Aguero scored the goal or indeed at the blowing of the final whistle would have been limp and lame and would have failed entirely to deal with the scenario as it actually worked out. And that is a great lesson for anyone who's broadcasting. Of course, you should have some thoughts in your mind about likely outcomes and scenarios. But if you try to write down word for word what you're going to say, uh, in a moment like that, you're going to come up short. Well, it's all about being natural, uh, surely, and and surely within those calls for you has to be some somewhat of a a love of language. Um, I I, I want to know, Peter, where where your linguistic background uh, comes from, because these are clearly natural calls. These are clearly just coming in the moment, freestyle, out of the brain, into the microphone. So where does the love of language for Peter Drury come from? I have to know. To well, know. there's no real answer to that. I mean, I, I always have loved the English language. Um, I, I had no brilliant qualifications in it. I have no degree in it. I didn't eat. I mean, I, I did OK at school, but I wasn't a superstar. By, by any means, um, when it came to to um, writing the language, I, I in fact, if I think back to my school days, my my uh, teachers probably used to say of me exactly what my critics say of me now, and and that is you're wordy, you know, <laughs> verbose was the word that was used of me, and and you know, florid and flowery and all of those words, which which is absolutely either fair criticism or lovely praise. You know, in, in our business, you can't please all of the people all of the time. That's the way I do it. 
and um, you know, it's it's it it would be a compromise of who I am to do it any other way. So um, I, I I can't really give you a kind of route or a starting point for for my love of language, but I have always loved words. Um, and as I say, there are some people out there who'd say I use too many of them. But um, <laughs> there you are, for better or worse, that's just the way it's all worked out. You know, the uh, the the elegant simplicity of that answer actually transitions perfectly uh, in into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. And this is bouncing off a few other chats uh, that that I've heard you have uh, with folks over over the years, and I've heard you refer to yourself. Uh, I'm I'm slightly paraphrasing here, but essentially a a humble lad just loving football, uh, a, a person who is living the dream, who gets to be at football matches, and you love the beautiful game. Above all else, how often do do you find yourself on weekends, on big Champions League nights, coming back to to that philosophy of just being a humble lad who loves football? All the time, honestly, all the time. Every, every no, listen, I don't want to. I don't want to build an unrealistic picture. Like everybody else, there are days when I wake up and have to go to work, and you know, would rather stay in bed. But but broadly speaking, even on those days, if I get to the venue. And I see tens of thousands of people who paid hard earned money to watch the match that I'm about to be paid to watch. I think, who's the lucky one here? You know, and it's an incredibly privileged position to hold for, for any of us actually in the media, any of us who get paid to do what other people are choosing to pay a lot of money to do um, is very fortunate, you know, and um that's again i'm not painting myself as some sort of angel here because i have a whinge and a moan at work like everybody else does sometimes <laughs> but 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 broadly speaking um you take my point you know uh, what is there to complain about uh, it, it's a uh, you know i every time i walk into a stadium particularly every so often when i go somewhere new somewhere i haven't been before um I, I still, when I sort of walk up through the stand and look over and see the floodlights and see the green grass and, and the sort of sharp white lines, I still get the same uh, little frisson of excitement that I've always got. What was the first time that you remember in, in your life, maybe even going back all the way to childhood, that you remember getting that football feeling? When, when did it really become a part of you? Well, I, I, I have a confession to make. Well, not a confession. It's just the, re the reality of my life. I, I didn't have the sort of I had wonderful parents, but not the sort of parents who took me to football matches. So actually growing up, my football was all consumed on the television and the radio. Actually, I used to love radio football. And so it wasn't until my late teens that I started attending football matches as a as a spect or professional football matches uh, as a spectator. And I, I remember I went to university in the um, in the northeast of England in a city called Hull. Um, you'll know of Hull City, who have been in the Premier League in recent years. Um, and it was there, actually, that I started going regularly to watch Hull City long before they were in the Premier League. Uh, and I remember walking up in their old ground and, and uh, looking at the pitch. And I used to be first into the ground as a 18 year old. So we're not talking about six, seven, eight, nine year olds and as an 18 year old. I used to be first there on a Saturday afternoon uh, at one o'clock for a three o'clock kickoff and um, watch them all warm up. And it was another 45 minutes before the next spectator even came in uh, because I, I sort of I, I just was 
uh, enthralled, entranced by the, the whole scenario. Well, I love the uh, indoctrination as a, as a whole city supporter there at, at 18. But going back, actually, to that childhood that you referenced, that was actually a really interesting point that you touched on there, your early love of radio and television. And surely that had to be a big influence, maybe a big head start uh, for, for you in terms of the love for broadcasting and, and getting to listen to the best of the best week in, week out. Who, uh, Peter, were some of those first voices, those formidable year voices uh, that you remember making a, a great impact on you as a young, aspiring broadcaster? Well, actually, you're absolutely right. Um, you asked me about my love of language and, it, and it's sort of um, the, the way it runs parallel with my love of sport. And, and that should have been my answer to your previous question, because <laughs> I, I, I did. I did consume all of my professional sport via the television. And, and back then, of course, before all football was live on the television. It really was reliant on the radio. And, and one of the great uh, wordsmiths of my youth, or a couple of them, were, were two of the great BBC radio commentators, uh, reporters, correspondents, um, a man called Peter Jones, who had a beautiful um, lyrical voice and a wonderful use of words as he described football matches. Uh, and uh, Brian Butler, who was a very different sort of broadcaster with a with a gravelly, almost a smoker's voice, if you like, which which doesn't do it just justice. He's he sort of spoke like a double bass, um, <laughs> and also used words beautifully. And and those guys and others around them, I was I was absolutely enthralled to them. Uh, and uh, so when I got my first opportunity within BBC Radio, which for me uh, in my twenties was a, an absolute pinnacle. Um, felt to me like the the academy of of uh, sports broadcasting. Those were the guys actually that I wanted to emulate. And so when when my planets do align and I do manage to to find a phrase that sums up a goal, um, I would credit them with that. And if sometimes that attempt to, if you like, work harder than seems normal to come up with a phrase or a series of words that um, that works for a goal. If that sounds old fashioned or even perhaps to some contrived, um, I think that is because at heart I am old fashioned and I hark back to the way it was done uh, maybe 30, 40 more years ago um, and, and relish um, in some sense reflecting my broadcasting heroes. Oh, absolutely. And, and there, there very much is a, a palpable nostalgia that, that goes with your calls when, when you're on the broadcast that ties right back to the present moment, though, which, which is so important, bouncing off of all the things that you've touched on, of living in the moment, the thrill of, of football. I've heard you talk about the, the, the concept of 1-1 or 0-0 in the 80th minute and it just being the, the greatest thing in the world and having to have that present moment mentality. So, Continuing on that, tying it all together, the, the nostalgia, the heroes of the past and the up to the minute excitement of football. What is it on on these days that that really gets you buzzing the most within within that whole conversation? Is it the storylines within the league or does it always just come back to that that good fortune of being in the position that you're in? Well, it always comes back to that good fortune. But let's be frank. The best football, the best sport is sport with a really strong narrative. That's what we like. To me, 
it's it's all there's almost no point doing it as a broadcast without a story it is all about the story and there's also very little point doing it without jeopardy sport is nothing without jeopardy and that that plays into what you say about nil nil after 80 minutes it might have been a terrible game but it's still very exciting because at nil nil you might win you might lose and so there's jeopardy if if there is something at stake if there's something personal at stake, if there's promotion, relegation, a title, whatever, then there's always a story to be told. And that is, that's what presses my buttons, actually. Jeopardy, excitement, narrative. Um, and whatever game you're working on, whether it is the biggest game in the world or something much, much humbler, if you can, I think, identify the narrative and understand what it is to not to the media bubble, but to um, people at large, people who paid to come into that venue and watch the sport. What what are they thinking with 10 minutes to go at nil-nil? Uh, and you can somehow articulate or reflect that. Then, um, then that more or less does the job, I think. Peter, when you talk about articulating excitement and narrative and making sure that that gets across uh, to the audience, I couldn't think of a greater example of uh, that principle than the great Shabalala goal of of 2010 and and goal for goal for South Africa, goal for for all Africa and everything that went in uh, to that call that was for a lot of people uh, their first exposure to to your work and and what an album to start on uh, that moment that goal uh, to to kick off South Africa 2010 and I throw it right back to you Peter I know you've you've talked about this moment so many times with so many different people so as I'm you know deep, deep in the line of asking you about it what what goes through your mind now thinking back almost 10 years on uh to that day and and that famous moment in your career and and in football well there, there, there are a couple of things to say about that one very pragmatic and the other the, the rest of it much more emotional than that um in terms of emotion that was a beaut- there, there is no day that um, makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up like that does and makes me choke like that does uh, because that was a genuinely beautiful day for all that it meant um, because here at last was an African World Cup. I walked into that fantastic stadium in Johannesburg seeing black and white people coming together, laughing, sharing the day, smiling. There, there was universal happiness there was massive pride in a country which not many years previous to that had been at, at its deepest low um, and whose recovery, which is still ongoing, was was uh, was somehow exemplified by um, the, the sense of humankind uniting. It was beautiful. It meant so much. And um, when this guy who was from poverty-stricken Soweto, who grew up underneath a corrugated iron roof, um, scored that goal. It just, uh, it was everything, really. It, 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 you, couldn't, you couldn't have found a better way to uh, show the world what sport can do for the world and what sport can do for human beings. And I, I just thought it was an immensely um, powerful moment. And it was also a terrific goal, which helped, you know, if that had been a scrappy little two yards out, came off his knee, uh, it still would have meant as much. But somehow he came up with a goal 
that that just framed it and put it on the world's mantelpiece um and it, it was a gorgeous moment so so when i think back to that i i think of all of those things i also think again how lucky i got um because truth be told there were two guys in that south african team each of whom had um long dreadlocked hair and uh, one of them played the pass and one of them scored the goal and I thought I knew who scored the goal and I gave Shabalala the full treatment. But truth be told, there was 10% of me thinking, I hope I've got this right because uh, he didn't have his back <laughs> showing me. He, I didn't see the number on his shirt. And so one of the greatest feelings of relief I've had ever was when he turned around to do his dance and I saw, I think it was number eight on his shirt. I saw the number eight and realized I called the right name. Uh, <laughs> and so, so anything else I said after that was probably... Uh, nothing more than a sort of um, letting out of massive relief. Now, the response to that goal call and the response to your role within this this phenomenal, theatrical, brilliant, beautiful moment in, in world football history, the response to that goal kind of throws uh, a, a big wrinkle into our entire conversation here, Peter. And what I mean by that is the people of South Africa heard that call and your voice was within hours within days was mixed into music tracks it was being played on speakers on repeat all over the streets people were partying uh to the sounds of peter drury's goal call of shabalala's goal uh against mexico uh -huh. when you know that because i know people have talked to you about that i know you were in south africa th for the remainder of of that summer when people are putting you in into that position, how does that make a, a humble lad who just loves football? How does that make you feel knowing that you matter to these people? You matter to people who support their national team. And there's multiple examples of it, but I can't think of a of a greater example than than that goal. Well, um, it makes me feel very lucky, very, very lucky. Um, but but uh, please don't think I'm being disingenuous when I answer like this. It also makes me want to sort of curl up and close the curtains because <laughs> because um i i honestly um the, the uh that sort of attention is is not really what i want um i i, I it makes me nervous because the next time something big happens i might not get it right and i realize uh, maybe this sounds terribly pessimistic i'm not i'm not pessimistic actually I, i'm very optimistic um, but uh, you, it sort of brings home to you that you're on the edge, you know, doing this job. And I'm just as likely to foul one up one day and offend the complete nation. Um, and so when when there is a, a, a wave of praise like that, I would I'd, I'd almost rather say, can we rather than pouring it all over me now, can we just save it? and use it to neutralize when I get one wrong and we'll just call it quits. <laughs> and so I'll, ca I'll, ca I'll carry along on a flat line if that's okay, rather than, rather than surf the highs and then know that I'm going to have to go deeply into the lows as well. I just, I just, I shrink, I shrink in the face of, um, of that sort of thing, to be honest. And so if you want to know how I did deal with it at the time, I pretended it wasn't happening. And actually, that was that was much, much earlier in the development of social media. So it wasn't as um, in your face 
as it would have been uh, now. I would say uh, not a pessimist, just a fan of duality. Uh, Peter, yeah. I, I, I like what you've done there uh, with that answer. Now, now that transitions back to your English roots, and you've obviously called many a England national team matches, but even just going back to uh, those teenage years that we were talking about earlier into into adulthood. How much of the uh, the duality and and whether we we, we want to call it pessimism, whatever it may be, how much of that ties to the uh, the English ethos within you, and and maybe even more so the English football ethos within you, Peter? You mean we get used to disappointment? I I may have been alluding to that. Yeah, well, it's funny actually because yes, we do. I mean, there's there's a great gallows humour in England about our inevitable uh, falling short at every major tournament when it comes <laughs> round, uh, and one of these days we'll win the World Cup and we won't know what to do with ourselves. We, you know, that each World Cup gives us four years more of whining and moaning about our national team. So if we actually win, goodness knows what we'll talk about. But um, so, so, yeah, maybe it does play into that. But what I would say is that at the moment we've got a very good English national team under a very, very good, humble, empathetic, sympathetic, um, intelligent coach. Um, who I think is is carrying the team in the right direction. Um, and he had a very good World Cup campaign last time round and lifted everybody from a point of relatively low expectation. Uh, so I just hope for, for Gareth's sake that um, the elevated expectation that he now has to deal with is, is something he's able to meet because um, he understands as much as anyone that the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and all that can, can work both ways. Um, and uh, I, I would hate for the, the great scrutiny and, and um, sort of wave of opinion that, that follows any shortcoming or failure of our national side to gobble him up. But yeah, to, to, to answer your question, um, yes, maybe there is a, a natural English caution. <laughs> There's my clock striking six. Well, there's uh, going back to, to, to real quick one moment, Peter, from the uh, 2018 World Cup in Russia. There was one of my favorite calls uh, of all time. And, and within all the, the great poetic lines that people have enjoyed of yours, one of the, the starkest, simple calls that I've ever heard you make is one of my all time favorites. And it was after the England Columbia match in the round of 16. And you just leaned into the microphone and said, England win on penalties and I could hear the disbelief in your voice as it transmitted out through the international waves what do you what do you remember uh, uh, about that moment and kind of what it says uh, about much of what we're talking about here well funnily enough you know to go back to what we were talking earlier about um, should you ever script a line again I admitted in that conversation that it's not wrong to have a broad idea of what might come out in a moment that might happen. You do have to be very careful about not overly precisely scripting it. Um, and I had thought about what would I say if England won a game on penalties, given their history of failure on penalties. And I thought and thought and thought for 20 minutes, half an hour, is there a clever line to be had here? And I thought, actually, nothing would be more appropriate than the simple fact that England have won on penalties. Um, and so uh, when they did, uh, I guess the bit that was natural was the intonation. 
the the that the disbelief that um you perhaps heard in my voice um it, it was it, it sort of it flew in the face of so much painful history that that certainly anybody who knew anything about english football would understand that those brief simple words england have won on penalties were enough there there was nothing more to say um you know uh and for those of us who were lucky enough to be there and were English, that is another shiver down the spine moment. Wow, we actually did it and we were there when we did it. Extraordinary. You gotta love it. Um, Peter, tying this this whole conversation together, really kind of putting a bow uh, on this whole thing. Appreciate your time and, and all that you've provided to the show here and putting the bow on it with broadcasting as a craft. What is your number one piece of advice that that you give to those young aspiring broadcasters that, again, I want to make this abundantly clear. This is something really cool. I've seen you make time for for these young aspiring broadcasters, and and I want to know what the number one thing that you tell them is. Well, ultimately, I think be yourself, truthfully, because um, otherwise you get found out. And sometimes it's not easy to be yourself because... You do have to understand in a very public job like this that not everybody is going to like your work. Um, And that can hurt. Uh, And in a very competitive industry like ours is, um, as you understand, you're also going to suffer rejection. And um, so all you can be is true to yourself. Do it the way you think it should be done. Um, Do it with honesty. And before you embark on the journey, just check with yourself that you really mean it. That is to say, you really love the game that you're going to describe and you really love the process, the work, the preparation that goes into it. Because if you don't, it will find you out. If you're going into it because you think you might get famous on the telly, that's the wrong reason to go into it. Go into it because you really love the whole process. Uh, and if you if you can manage to do that and and manage to retain the enthusiasm that made you want to do it in the first place, then you're a lucky person because every day when you get up and go to work, you'll be going to work that feels like play. That's absolutely brilliant. And Peter, this is normally the time in the show where I have uh, the guest give out their uh, social media handles. So uh, in lieu of that, uh, any uh, closing statements that you would like to make, Mr. Drury? Just an absolute pleasure to speak with you. It really is. I'm, I'm very flattered because I know I know this is a, a show well listened to, particularly by the um, by the soccer community in the United States. And um, so I'm flattered that you've asked me to talk about myself. And um, I hope your listeners are still awake. <laughs> they most definitely are. And we look, for, we look forward to doing another one of these very soon, sir. Thank you so much for your time, Peter. You're welcome. Another huge thank you to Peter Drury for joining us here on episode four of The Heart of the Game. That was a real treat for me, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. From here in the cross-border community of San Diego and Tijuana, Baja California, Mexico, to London, Johannesburg, and everywhere in between, this is Nate Abaurea signing off. Thanks for listening. 
to the heart of the game. Bye for now.